0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Five. There's a kind of sense that, well, we're in power, we're ahead in the polls, so don't rock the boats. Four.
0: And what is the meaning of the word stagflation? Sounds like a furniture range to me. Three.
2: When people say we're heading for a winter of discontent, they don't remember the winter of discontent. It was far, far worse than what we're facing.
0: Actually, I don't think it's fair that I raise the blood pressure of Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners. I like to think I act as a kind of, you know, a calmative. A
1: soothing balm. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, co-pilot Pearson is back from her holidays, dear listeners, and how. The planet normal queen hasn't just topped up her tan, she's topped up the blood pressure of (laughs) countless telegraph readers, unleashing a column in today's paper and online bemoaning, where is the real Boris Johnson? The Prime Minister told the party faithful in Manchester he wants Britain to become a high-wage, high-skilled, high-productivity economy. Fair enough. But there's widespread concern the tax burden's now at its highest level since World War II, with the state set to get bigger still, as yet more tax rises come in. This feels like the least conservative conservative government of all time, bemoans (laughs) Lapierce. What the hell are they going to do now, is my almost daily lament. Alison, now I know you're feeling a bit snuffly, a bit under the weather, Mm -hmm. but your anger at Boris, I think it's fair to say, it's about a lot more than back from holiday blues.
0: I have got this thing. I think I've got this world's worst cold, Halligan. But it's not COVID. (laughs) It's not COVID.
1: You need a T-shirt.
0: It's not COVID. It's not COVID. If I start sounding a bit Fenella Fielding, everyone will have to forgive me. Actually, I don't think it's fair that I raise the blood pressure of Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners. I like to think I act as a kind of calmative. A
1: soothing balm.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm not angry. First of all, we should say that you've actually been... In these conference places, haven't you, draining the mini bars dry, living off curled up (laughs) cheese sandwiches and standing on your GB News podium, looking all fancy pants, interviewing all these posh.
1: Can I just say our GB News podium was much, much bigger than Sky's (laughs) podium. And that's what counts. That's what counts. It was taller, wider, bigger. (laughs)
0: we know Halligan's podium is the biggest of them all. It's wrong to say I'm angry. I'm, you know, in that famous teacher word, I'm I'm disappointed, really. I, I feel massively alienated from the political class of all sorts. It's not just the Conservatives. I do think that we've lived through this extraordinary time when many of our political representatives have been absolutely useless, to be honest. And week after week on Planet Normal, we talk, don't we, Liam, about all the various ghastly goings-on and and to watch them cavorting and back-slapping bonhomie at these conferences. And you think, you know, have you got any idea what's been going on here? You know, I feel that there's this vast gap between our political classes and the ordinary men, women and children of England who are struggling to deal with the fallout from the last 18 months. But we should talk, shouldn't we, about the Boris speech, Liam? What did you think?
1: Well, I agree with you, Alison. I think there's a big gap between... Planet Normal, where we reside, and the rest of the country, right across the UK, and Planet Zog, where our (laughs) political class seems to spend its time. I mean, Keir Starmer in Brighton barely mentioned the fuel crisis. It was all about internal party Mm. warfare, and as I discussed with the fantastic Claire Fox last week, and shouldn't we thank her for standing in so beautifully for you.
0: No, no, Halligan, I'm not sure. I've told you what we're looking for in my substitutes is competence, not actual talent. I think Baroness Fox might be a bit good, actually. So, no, carry on. Please carry on.
1: <laughs> she was pretty damn good. She was. Good. As you said to me when I took it, you still got the gig, OK? Just. <laughs> Just. <laughs> but it felt the same in Manchester, where mm. you had a sort of political media class that was, you know, as you say, drinking and eating to beat the band, doing karaoke, Mm. there's a few sort of light fringes about this, that and the other. Meanwhile, the rest of the country can't get fuel, absolutely hamstrung by insulate Britain, nutters nailing their (laughs) fingers and toes to the motorway, this growing cost of living crisis, which really is serious. I personally think the Tories should have retained the twenty pound uplift to universal credit. And I know you agree with that from your column. Yeah. And we're two, you know, pretty died in the wall small state people, aren't we? Really? Mm. Interestingly, Ian Duncan Smith, the former Conservative leader, told G B News in an interview that he thinks that they should have kept the twenty pound uplift, given that we've got inflation at three or four percent and for Six million families that get universal credit. For many of those, they're vulnerable. They're on low incomes, even though they're at work. It's just that their wages are very, very low. That's why the state has to subsidise their wages. And Boris Johnson gave a kind of very uplifting, boosterish speech. But I think it was a speech that didn't really connect with reality. It certainly connected with people in the hall, though the mm. poll was very, very small, Maybe that's because they're worried not that many party members would show up, given the cost of attending these conferences. And it did the trick within the party. And he's clearly a prime minister who is unassailable, not just because the leader of the opposition is not really making that much headway, though I do think Starmer made more headway than lots of people give him credit for, but also because the party as a whole, even though lots of them are concerned about things that are going on as you are, like the sort of huge incursion of the state, like the loss of lots of freedoms, there's a kind of sense that, well, we're in power, we're ahead in the polls, so don't rock the boats. And that's my overwhelming feeling coming back from Manchester. There was a sense not of competence, but of control, of discipline, of trying to hold it together because down the track there are serious issues coming there are serious issues afoot and I don't think Boris Johnson reflected any of that in his speech and I think an awful lot of the public to the extent that they take notice will think that for all his rhetoric for all his obvious oratory skill for all his undoubted showmanship he sounds a bit out of touch.
0: Yeah I agree Liam before I talk about the speech I just want to say that I saw that GB News interview with Ian Duncan Smith and What a decent man. What a force for good he is. I thought he was almost in tears asking party leadership to keep the £20 increase just for a bit, just to be on Christmas. And the other thing, Liam, which I found really interesting was that six previous Tory work and pension secretaries, including as diverse figures as Amber Rudd, Esther McVeigh, These people had also asked for that relatively small amount, but vital to lots of families to be kept up. And as you say, when I'm talking about this not being a conservative government, I don't feel it's a conservative government. I'm not somebody who thinks there should be low taxes or low benefits. I'm talking about a lack of commitment to freedom. Let's remind Planet Normal listeners that on October the 19th, this government, an allegedly conservative government, plans to renew the corona. Virus legislation okay so basically why is the government doing this and what I'm really upset about because Boris as a Telegraph columnist I quoted him this week from one of his wonderful swashbuckling columns was saying if anybody ever introduced an identity card I'm a free-born Englishman and I would eat it you know and this is the same guy now hanging the threat you know, the machete of the vaccine passports is still hanging over us at a time when the virus is really on the way out now. I think it is almost all over, bar the shouting. He had an opportunity in the speech to say, "Absolutely, haven't we done well? My goodness me, well done, everyone. And thank
1: you. He could have thank said you. thank you. Yep. He almost didn't refer to the pandemic. No. Rishi Sunak referred to the pandemic a bit. Rishi Sunak's payoff to his speech was finally, finally we can face the future. Boris Johnson barely referred to the pandemic, even though for lots of people in the hall, lots of ordinary centre-ground voters, they've been really narked by these pandemic measures and he barely mentioned them. Head in the sand.
0: I made some notes, Liam, when I was watching earlier and I thought the speech, it, it did showcase his strengths and his weaknesses. Undeniably a great entertainer, Speech was 45 minutes of in jokes, as you said, to delight the party, faithful about Michael. Gove's nightclub dancing, John Bon Govey, as he called him, you know, playful allusions delivered at the speed of a Gilbert and Sullivan patter song, obscure literary references, grey's elegy in a country churchyard.
1: The raucous caucus over orcus, given that the French <laughs> got upset at the new pact with the Americans and the Australians.
0: That's right. He was having a lot of fun with the language. It's just one of the things that always endeared him to me. And if you can imagine a cross between the president of the Oxford Union and Ken Dodd, This was it. But as as you said, co-pilot... What a gay day with his tickling stick. (laughs) tickling stick. In fact, if you'd given him a tickling (laughs) stick, it would have been complete.
1: With all the Diddy men sitting behind him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We can see a few of those, can't we, really? (laughs) Dominic Robb in one of those little pixie hats would have been good. (laughs) But what this speech lacked, I mean, it was absolutely charming. And of course, everyone was roaring with laughter. But where was the content? Where was the heft? We had some Build Back Better stuff. There were no policy announcements that I could hear, Liam. I think we had been expecting him to announce a rise in the minimum wage. That didn't happen. Very little about this green industrial revolution he's promising to to rush in at vast cost. But you know those moments in the James Bond film where 007 revs up the Aston Martin to jump across a chasm. And Boris was talking so fast to leap over these gaping holes in his arguments. So on the one hand, he's championing a low tax economy, but oh, hang on, his government's just raised taxes to their highest level since the war. That makes absolutely no sense. Uh, What I thought, Liam, overwhelmingly was this was a speech that was written for another time. So it sounded like a victory speech. It sounded like the speech Boris wanted to give at conference in October 2020 after having routed Jeremy Corbyn, as he called him, the corduroyed cosmonaut sent off into outer space. But this speech came after 18 brutal months of lockdown, of deaths, of school closures, of an epidemic of mental health problems, of bankruptcies, as you say, they're accused to get fuel, accused to see, A GP, the threat of no turkey for Christmas. And I think the mood of the nation is apprehensive. Absolutely. And it was though our Prime Minister was in complete denial about this dire place that the country finds itself in. And I think that future historians will watch this speech and regard it as deeply odd and evasive. Now, we know that comedy is Boris's natural medium. He excels in it. But He shies away from darkness and tragedy. I happen to think that's a hangover from his childhood when his mother tragically was was in and out of mental institutions. I think she sadly, very sadly died a couple of weeks ago. Let's not forget he buried his mother last week. So this was an extraordinary performance from a man who must have been going through great grief for a, a mother I know that he adored. But we... As a people, have lived through a time of enormous tragedy, and here was our prime minister, the man we look to, who simply, to me, does not have the moral seriousness to confront the gravity of the crisis we're facing.
1: I think there's a lot in that, Alison. He is at risk of almost deriding lots of members of the general public. It's all very well playing with words and, you know, lightly poking fun at Michael Gove's throwing shapes in an Aberdeen nightclub. But a lot of families have just lost a major part of their income, albeit income given to them by the state. This is the biggest overnight reduction in benefits in our history. China has been assailing Taiwanese airspace with military planes over the last week. Oil has just gone above $80 a barrel. The UK economy has stalled the official data shows, and the survey data is even worse because of these supply chain crunches. Now, we are generally optimistic people. We generally support our leaders, our politicians being upbeat and not being down in the dumps. We don't do doom porn, do we? Doom no. porn. We don't do that. But you have to be realistic. And I think there was a real detachment. That's why I called it Planet Zog. I could hardly believe that I'm saying this, but even the Labour conference with all its psychotic (laughs) intra-faction rivalries that Labour does so well, so much better than everyone else, there was more realism, I thought, in Keir Starmer's speech. At least he did talk about the fuel crisis. At least he did talk about people suffering economically. At least he did talk about the coming cost of living crisis. I must say, I think it was Planet Normal who first coined the phrase in this iteration for this generation winter of discontent we did that a long time ago alison you and i and we both wrote about it we're closer now than we were and yet boris johnson's he he wasn't preparing the ground at all with the general population for these difficulties that we face he thought he could get away with a bit of after dinner ribald humor and then the plebs can go back to their constituencies
0: Yes, it's not enough just to shout otter. I mean, otter is a funny word, but you know, and it was build back beavers, which I think has, has come from the third Mrs. Johnson, quite honestly, it was quite a lot of wildlife references. Halligan, I want to ask you now with that great economics brain, okay, I've, I've written down some questions because I'm really interested. One reason I voted for Brexit was because I felt strongly that people from, particularly from Eastern European countries, builders and so on, were coming here and were undercutting our chaps, our, our men and women, and you know we were a low wage economy. Actually, I'm close to one family where the dad is a plasterer, and you know he was absolutely On his uppers because there were people from Poland and Lithuania were undercutting him. He wasn't able to even pay the mortgage. So I was all for that, all right? So Brexit, in theory, correct me if I'm wrong, was going to take low-wage workers out of the economy. And the plan now that Boris is saying takes guts is to replace the low wage workers with higher paid. British workers moving from a low wage, low skills model to a high wage, high skills model. Now, that sounds great. But what happens now, Liam, if we have high wages and low growth and low productivity? And what is the meaning of the word stagflation? Sounds like a furniture range to me. Go on. Yeah,
1: stagflation is when you get an inflatable moose and cavort (laughs) with it across the moorland
0: i knew i knew you'd (laughs) explain that's enough about your private life co-pilot go on
1: (laughs) there are other podcasts on other parts of the (laughs) internet for things like that so stagflation is the combination of economic stagnation so low or even negative growth so economic contraction plus inflation because inflation can be characterized in periods of high growth when the economy is running really, really hot. But you can also have inflation when the economy is going very slowly or even contracting. And the so-called misery index, the combination of unemployment and inflation, is particularly high in a stagflationary environment. And we had stagflation in the early 70s and again in the early 80s. And they were dark economic times and times of real political ferment and turbulence because of that economic stagflation you're completely right that was the vision of brexit and in some sectors like the building trade you know wages have gone up because it has been harder for overseas labor to undercut if you like indigenous labor but the the danger is that we've got this million vacancies in the uk or more but there's what you call occupational and geographical mismatch often between Workers that haven't got work, workers who are unemployed already, There's about 5% of the workforce, plus the 1.5 million people who are on furlough, some of whom may not get their jobs back. Furlough ended a week or so ago. We don't know how many furloughed workers retained their jobs and how many have been made unemployed. But the big point here, Alison, is that a lot of the vacancies are in occupations or in parts of the country where the labour isn't or the skills aren't. That's the point. It's not a case of just saying, oh, there's this many unemployed people, there's this many vacancies, it will all be fine. And the danger we're in now is that if you have inflation caused by supply chain crunches, and if you have wages rising because of labour shortage, that doesn't mean that productivity goes up. It just means that inflation goes up and the people that haven't got the wage rises, so people often outside the public sector, outside of trade unions or in, frankly, lower paid jobs in hospitality, care and so on, they are going to suffer even more because overall inflation will go up and they won't even have the wage rises that other people are getting. So they will be hit with a double whammy, no wage rise and also a much higher cost of living. And you're now seeing financial markets responding to Britain's rising supply chain crunch, which Brexit's made it worse in some sectors, but obviously there are supply chain crunches around the world. But you're seeing now the financial markets pricing in interest rate rises earlier. I mean, this time last month, most people, not me, but most economists thought the first interest rate rise would be in the middle of 2023. Now people are talking about maybe by the end of this year or certainly early next year, because that's what the weight of money in the financial markets is now betting on so we're now seeing sterling falling the pound falling a bit that brings inflation with it because imports become more expensive it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and i don't think any of this has troubled the prime minister's tiny pretty little head and this is he has to address these issues he has to talk about these issues or he's not going to look like a credible leader when the going gets really tough you know we've been living in a kind of quantitative easing fueled jacuzzi of cash over the last year, 18 months. It's been difficult for the Prime Minister, but there hasn't been massive economic issues because the state has been there. But that can't last forever. And if we do go into a much, much more difficult economic period where... People are losing their jobs where the cost of living really does rise, and you get four, five, six percent inflation now. You're seeing that expressed in financial markets. Numbers that just a couple of months ago would have sounded ridiculously alarmist. He's not going to do well. He's not going to come across as authoritative and reassuring and credible, given that his most recent major speech would have been joke laced and lacking policy. And as you say, lacking really in gravitas.
0: But the thing I wrote about this week, you know, this growing, I think, dismay amongst the hardcore Tory voters, the grassroots, which we've been picking up, Liam, haven't we, both in The Telegraph and on Planet Normal. And so there's this very strange situation and an unreal situation in which the Conservative leadership can just look at its 80 seat majority and think, oh, Labour's hopeless. I mean, we did see While I was away, that ornament to national life, Angela Rayner, giving a drunken rant at some fringe meeting of the Labour conference and Tory scum, homophobic, misogynist, racist, the usual. How
1: did you describe her mouth (laughs) in your column?
0: I don't know. How did I? Well, I I used the word gobby. I can't remember. What did I say? Effluent or something. The the gob of effluent. Oh, my God. I mean, how could that woman ever be represented on the national stage? It's a joke. So, yes, this has given the Conservatives, hasn't it, a sort of sense of superiority. And I think when we spoke when you were in Manchester this week, you used the word complacency, didn't you? you? You thought they were utterly complacent with no idea of these vast economic problems trundling to towards them like the lorry in the duel. So yeah, I think that I felt a kind of quite a longing for a sort of sense of of seriousness and caring and I didn't get that. I mean, I enjoyed Boris's speech in the way as you say that you'd enjoy a lovely after dinner speech, but it didn't make me feel confident for the next few months.
1: Before we stop this part of the conversation Alison, we should just mention two things. Firstly, The fact that even though the British Medical Association attacked you for attacking them and some doctors, you've been cleared by Ipsos, which is the regulatory (laughs) body. So the complaint that they made has been found to be entirely, well, unfounded.
0: Yes, well, you know it's upset me, liam. I mean I'm not really one of those sort of jackbooted journalists. i'm not haven't got a strong hide, really. I wish I did. And it's not very nice when people accuse you of inaccurate reporting. and what we've been doing here on Planet Normal, what I've been doing in in my telegraph column and what's been happening throughout the Telegraph and on the letters pages is this absolute flood of accounts from people men and women about terrible times trying to get hold of a GP and I'm afraid I've concluded that the medical authorities would like to suppress any discussion of these shortcomings they basically just want people to go away and die quietly and you know me Liam I'm tenacious little pit pony I'm not going to put up with that because if I see injustice or misery or suffering I am going to speak out I think that we were very pleased that Ipsos which is the press regulator found that their complaints were not, and I was entitled to comment. And the doctor's complaint was, as you see, they'll just make a blanket statement like, oh, GPs are fully open, which a lot of our listeners would dispute. But then when I say something, it's called anecdotes. Alison's using anecdotes. I don't think they're anecdotes. I think they're absolutely valid and powerful stories.
1: And stories that come directly from your readers and from Planet Normal listeners.
0: Unbelievable. Well, it was Nick Stokes. Do you remember when Joy Stokes died tragically, having been unable to get a scan and then they discovered she was riddled with cancer? It's stories like that which keep us thinking that we've got to fight. We have seen this week, Boris has did in his speech, the usual genuflection to our marvellous NHS. And you think, have you got any bloody clue? But Sajid Javid showed a bit of promise this week. I think he is going to say that they've got to sort of reform to earn this vast amount of what is it 36 billion or something that they've just chucked at them but he has hired this guy called general sir gordon messenger to sort out nhs waste and i think general sir gordon was a marine so if anyone can go in and bang heads but yeah it was a relief to be cleared although not that i ever felt guilty but it's not nice when you have these big professional bodies ganging up to silence you
1: So you got some news from George, George being, of course, our senior source within NHS England with full access to internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, and that's why you report them.
0: And I know Planet Normal listeners really appreciate the fantastic bulletins from the, within NHS England that George brings us. Can we just sit and savour for one second the fact that on the 15th of September, SAGE, that's the scientific advisory group, warned that we could see 7,000 hospitalizations a day next month. That's now. Are there 7,000 hospitalizations a day? No, there aren't. So, so how many are there? How many are there? Well, there were 600 admissions yesterday, says George, but at the same time, 550 COVID patients were discharged. So the net increase in occupied beds over the previous day was actually less than 100, not 7,000 as predicted by the... (laughs) How would you how would you describe the quality of the predictions of Professor Neil Ferguson? And if you and I were making predictions like that, we'd just go and hide hide under our duvet for hundred years, <laughs> wouldn't we? But they're still out there. So George says there are currently just short of five thousand COVID inpatients in England's hospitals. This is about fifteen hundred less than it was three weeks ago. Let's remind ourselves, co-pilot, that is five thousand COVID inpatients out of hundred and ten thousand available beds in NHS England. Now, I asked George if Professor Ferguson was wrong to claim that hospitals were already close to the limit. And George says he's not entirely wrong. This is really fascinating. But the NHS is being pushed close to its limit because of the non-COVID patients, both those with serious illnesses that worsened or been exacerbated by lockdown and the volume of elective admissions that hospitals are trying to catch up on the majority of which they'll try to treat without requiring an overnight bed, or the one in every three elective operations does at least require one overnight stay. Now, this is the nitty gritty, Liam. The problem is... That now the precedent has been set that COVID controlled via restrictions on our lives, this will always be the default argument, that we should do that again when things get tight in the NHS, as they do every winter, forgetting the fact that every time we lock down, it sets the elective programme back several months We should be focusing on boosting NHS capacity, on triaging patients better, on fully opening GPs, on finding treatments for COVID which might prevent symptoms. Very little money or effort has been spent on that so far. Otherwise, we will always hark back to this need for restrictions and the crisis in the NHS will never be over for years. So, concludes George, stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Ferguson, who knows as little about the NHS as he does about accurate modelling. Thank you, George. Nigel Farage.
1: This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse, Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general
0: feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right.
2: My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode.
1: So, dear co-pilot, who's our planet normal
0: rocket stowaway this week? I think you're going to really like this co-pilot. In the week of the Tory party conference, who better to invite aboard the rocket of right thinking than one of our most distinguished political commentators? Philip Johnston will be known to listeners as a superb veteran columnist. Phil and I, as you know, Liam, both have columns in The Telegraph every Wednesday I'm the shouty, emotional, blonde one. And Phil is the sage voice of calm and well-informed reason. (laughs) Philip Johnson served his apprenticeship in Thompson Regional Newspapers. He was the Today newspaper's political correspondent. You remember the Today newspaper, Liam? Oh, yeah. Before Eddie Shaw's paper, before joining the Daily Telegraph as chief political correspondent in 1988. In 2000, Phil became Home Affairs Editor, ascending to the eminence of chief leader writer in 2012 a job he still carries out with amazing facility most days of the week. Now, being chief leader writer for listeners' benefit really does mean Phil is the voice of the Telegraph.
1: Huge figure.
0: Huge figure. A voice that we, Liam, personally treasure and trust enormously. I thought Planet Normal listeners might enjoy hearing from this pivotal figure behind the scenes, and it turns out, co-pilot, that this was Phil's 40th Conservative Party conference. (laughs) So I began by asking Philip Johnston, what was the mood like among Tory members in Manchester this week?
2: Well, among the members here, remarkably upbeat. I wouldn't say complacent, that would be unfair, but extraordinarily positive they've seen the Labour Party conference really go nowhere. I mean, it's quite odd arriving here, as I've done at many Conservative conferences over the years, because you're usually greeted by a phalanx of lefties and unions waving banners and shouting Tories out. There's nothing, absolutely nothing. There's a chap just as a pig and a few people handing out leaflets And that's it. I mean, it's like the laws of politics have been suspended with Boris. You know, all these things are going on. We've had 18 months where the country's been virtually shut down and martial law decreed, and yet you wouldn't even notice it here. Nobody's wearing a mask at all, which is actually quite interesting. One aspect of this, because I know you're interested in this, is that the government hasn't lost or hasn't yet completely dumped the idea of COVID passports, but you don't need one to get in here. And you know, I tell you something. It was busier in the Midland Hotel last night than it would be in any nightclub.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, also, particularly the constituency attending will tend to be falling into the older age group, which may be more at risk from the virus, isn't it, Phil? Than yours? more at t- risk. Yeah,
2: it's more at risk, but also vaccinated. Yes. And we certainly double. And actually, there's a lot of young people here, a lot more younger people than used to be the case. I mean, it's changed certainly over the 40 years I've been doing it. But uh, the last 20 years, Blair's Great Revolution really changed a lot. And it's more corporate and PR-oriented than it ever used to be. I mean, I just think you need probably – I think the model has had its day, to be honest.
0: It's interesting you say about the mood there because – We are both Telegraph columnists and we hear a lot from ordinary Conservative voters, our readers. I don't know about you, Phil, but I've been picking up on a lot of anger and disillusion about the direction the government has taken, particularly its more authoritarian lockdown measures and, as you say, this looming threat of vaccine passports. Do you think the high poll lead the government continues to enjoy could perhaps be a bit misleading? And should the Tories be thinking a bit more about freedom, which is what they're supposed to stand for?
2: They should. Is it misleading? Possibly. Um, I think our readers are certainly more angry than the membership here or the people here. It's a different type of membership now. Once upon a time, they were basically voters who were part of the Conservative local association for social reasons as much as anything else. Now most of them are potentially career politicos, people who want to be special advisors, people who want to be counsellors, people who eventually want to be MPs. So it's a different group of people from the ones who read, I'm sure they certainly read The Telegraph, but they're different from the ones that write to us, write to you or write to me as columnists, who've been disappointed with Boris, who they had great hopes for and feel that he's let them down a bit over the last 18 months. But, I mean, you know, they have given him the benefit of the doubt because of the circumstances that he found himself in. Um, I know some people don't, and personally, I think he could have made some different decisions. But it seems to me that the majority of the country still thinks that with the hand that he was dealt, he um, played a reasonably good game.
0: Drawing on your long experience, is this the least conservative, conservative government we've ever had?
2: Well, since the first one I covered was Thatcher, yes, yes. <laughs> but I was talking to somebody earlier on today who said that this government reminded him of the Heath government uh, interventionist tinkering around at the edges, lightning wishy soon actor Tony Barber. It is one of the um, more remarkable aspects of this that what i 'd anticipated to be quite economic hit that the country would be taking, particularly on the jobs front, hasn't actually materialised. You know, we've got more vacancies than ever. And as the furlough unravels, there will be some problems for some people, which is why Sunak has announced this sort of interim help. But otherwise, the sort of two million unemployed plus that, Quite a lot of us thought would happen that hasn't happened.
0: No, it hasn't. The Heath comparison does make me wonder whether, slightly mischievously, we've we've seen Liz Truss's blow dry getting more and more Maggie-like as the weeks <laughs> go by. So might we see um, a Boris heath regime give way to a Truss? <laughs> A thrusting trust, Maggie regime, but I'm just coming to this. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor said in his speech on Monday that he knows tax rises are unpopular. Some say unconservative. The Chancellor acknowledged but they are the lesser of two evils. But Phil, we've also got senior Tories like Jacob Rees-Mogg and Ben Houchen saying that taxes cannot be raised any further. Are we potentially heading towards a split in the party or at least an acrimonious dust-up?
2: If they carry on doing it, but I suspect they won't. I mean, I think this will probably be it. And the, the national insurance increase is obviously going to be trotted out as paying for the nhs and that's how it'll be explained to a country that has been told to worship the nhs so from that point of view i suppose he's got quite a lot of leeway i mean i think boris's view will be this is it we're not going to do any more and with a bit of luck and he has a lot of luck let's face it by the time we get to the next election he might be in a position to cut them again and put Labour in a seriously difficult position. In a few years' time, if people say, well, actually, I see what's in it for me, is what will win in the next election.
0: You wrote two really good columns recently, Phil, about the neglect of our energy security, saying that if Boris's famed luck runs out, this winter could be worse than lockdown. Do you think we might be heading for a winter of discontent? I mean, empty shelves and a lot of angry motorists...
2: Yeah, the energy security was more to do with the um, power rather than fuel. Fuel, I think, is is temporary and can be um, plugged with probably just, a- i mean, Grant Shapps thinks just the recruitment of a few thousand drivers doesn't think they need 60,000. And he, I think to some extent the government's right. This is something that the haulage companies should have been doing years ago. They should have been investing in proper facilities for the drivers. They shouldn't have just relied upon... You know, an easy source of cheap labor from the continent. So, the average age of people in the business is 55. A lot of people have left it. But they've got a good point there. My point on energy security is that there is a gap between these green ambitions of Boris, which are getting more and more ridiculous, really. He's now down to 2035. You know, soon it'll be next year or whatever. That we're going to be entirely uh, dependent upon wind power. So, unless you've got something to pick up the base load when there isn't any wind or the renewables don't work properly. And as we've not got any coal and we've decided not to have gas or oil, it's got to be nuclear. And they're all talking about this at the moment. Boris will be talking about it as well. Small modular reactors, which are instead of having the huge, great Dungeness power station, you have these small reactors which you can put in local areas They try getting planning permission for that that should be interesting but you need we're going to need these and we're going to need them quickly otherwise there will be this period inevitably where either you have to buy the gas from russia or get the electricity from france which we do anyway uh, who have incidentally 59 nuclear reactors to our seven
0: Gosh, is that right? I wouldn't really at this point in our history want to be dependent on, on, well, exactly. on, this, so on the French. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> Let alone on Putin. No, no, between the two, a, a very peevish Macron or a you know, scheming Putin would be pretty bad. I'm
2: not suggesting that the French will do it, but they could just say we're cutting off the interconnector. That's 8% of our electricity. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what you get yourself into if you do not... Um, ensure your self sufficiency as much as possible. Not many countries are self sufficient in energy. I mean, the Americans are because they went for shale.
0: Liam and I were talking about this the week before, and other countries have bigger reserves than we do, don't they?
2: Well, we had actually quite considerable shale reserves, but we've decided not to have any of them. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about relying on them entirely, but you could, you know, they should have been an important, maybe a stopgap mix to produce the baseload of uh, power while you brought a new generation of nuclear on board. But basically, no politician seems to have focused on this over the years because gas was cheap, so just carry on. Uh, one of the jobs of the state is not just to look to the next election, it's to look to 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. How many times have we bemoaned short-termism? I mean, you know, in the NHS, which you have written about so many times, it's just we better not do anything about reforming it because it will cost us at the next election. I mean, it is just, uh, that's the one thing that really gets, over 40 years has really angered and irritated me, that the short-termism of British political thinking.
0: Yes, I mean, the NHS, you know, I mean, people have been joking, haven't they, that we're an NHS with a a small country attached. I mean, you wrote another column, I, I recall, where you said that the Boris that you knew would have been calling out the NHS. It wouldn't have just been throwing more money at it while it was unreformed. But that seems to be indeed the case now as the Conservatives style themselves as the party of the NHS. I mean, what hope of improved hospitals and GP appointments if the Tories are just going to require uh, voters to genuflect before a, a, a patently flawed, you know, beer moth?
2: Well, it's not just the Boris I knew would have called it out. The Boris I knew did. Because one of the curses, of course, of being a prime minister who used to be a columnist is that you can dig out what they said before. (laughs) So I think I've used a couple of columns recently to point out that he said the opposite of what he's doing now. So when Gordon Brown in 2002 budget announced a huge increase in funding for the NHS, paid for by an increase of 1% on national insurance contributions. Mm-hmm. Ring a bell? Mm-hmm. And, of course, yeah. the reason that they did that in 2002 is because they'd had a flu epidemic two years earlier, which nearly brought the NHS to its knees. I remember being in their House of Commons at the time, Alan Milburn, I think, was health secretary, with him being bayed at by the Tories because patients were being treated in ambulances in the forecourts of hospitals. People were in corridors and all the rest. All the things that they've locked us down to avoid this time actually happened in 2000. Not that anybody seems to remember. It wasn't that long ago. And as a consequence of that, Labour said, right, we're not going to have that again. So we're going to put a load of money into the NHS and we'll pay for it by increasing national insurance contributions. And Boris wrote a very good column at the time saying, this is a disgrace. We should reform the NHS before we throw money at it. And this is a tax on jobs.
0: I actually went back and looked at the first conservative conference you attended in 1981 when you were feisty young lobby correspondent for Thompson regional newspapers. That, I was amazed to be reminded, was Margaret Thatcher's darkest hour. There was brutal infighting in Thatcher's inner circle, and she became the least popular prime minister in polling history. So compared to 1981, I I guess that's what you can bring, isn't it, to your work, is, is the long view. I mean, no one looking at that 1981 conference would have foreseen how she would bounce back so brilliantly and, and, and go on in triumph for so many years.
2: Well, nobody imagined for a moment that a military hunter in South America would invade British territory. Otherwise, she'd probably have been out. But uh, this is nothing compared to those days. I mean, uh, you know, inflation was over 20%. Unemployment was rising up to 3 million. I mean, most Tory conferences, one of the highlights was always the, um, the law and order debate. And I remember Edwina Curry at The time she was just a candidate. She was not a an MP delivering a real fire, brimstone, hang 'em, flog em speech, and brandishing a set of handcuffs on the stage while she spoke. <laughs> but in, they were extraordinary times. Of course, the most extraordinary one I covered was the eighty four one, which um, <laughs> I nearly got killed. So you were oh, you were
0: at Brighton, were you?
2: again unfortunately i was um up very late because it was three o'clock in the morning the, the bomb went off and uh, myself and a few others had been out for a very late boozy dinner at the end of conference and um i was standing on the steps of the metropole hotel next door to the grand hotel and the bomb went off so i had thought of walking across it it wasn't a car bomb as we thought at the time as we all know now it was inside the hotel but uh, if I look back at the most dramatic conferences, that easily, was easily it.
0: You presumably saw Norman Tebbit being carried out. Were you ringing in reports to the paper?
2: I, well, as I say, I was working for Thompson Regional newspapers. so the three newspapers. I was out with two former friends, both of whom are dead now, actually, Bob Porter of the Daily Mail and Chris Potter of the Sun. And the only three papers that got the story in their last editions were The Mail, The Sun and The Journal in Newcastle. <laughs> and I can remember ringing the news desk. The editor was got out of bed and he said, are you sure it's not a gas explosion? I said, well, it would be rather coincidental, wouldn't it, in the hotel with the Prime Minister and the Cabinet.
0: Was there a moment before you knew that, that the Prime Minister was safe?
2: Oh, we knew because we saw her getting in her car and driving she was driven off. It's one of those times in your life that is just so vivid. I can remember almost every minute of it.
0: But she did then stand up, didn't she, at the conference? And you know, we she we, did. Know.
2: They told her they said it should be called off, and she refused. And she went in the next day and she made the most amazing speech. As a sort of coda to all that, some appalling lowlife put a um, a banner up here in Manchester with the words, we only have to be lucky once, which, of course, was the message the IRA sent to her uh, and the party on in 1984. You were lucky today, we only have to be lucky once. Most chilling message imaginable.
0: Phil, you were on the Home Affairs beat for The Telegraph from 2002, 2012. Have the police ever looked quite as dodgy as they do today? And, and should Pretty Patel be sacking Cressida Dick?
2: Have they looked as dodgy? Yes. I um, <laughs> In the 60s and 70s, there was monumental corruption, in the, particularly in the Met. In fact. So it's not that. We don't have the corruption anymore. And this appalling business with, with Sarah Everard, where it's more to do with a culture than, than corruption, it seems to me, and a failure to investigate properly.
0: The the Sunday Mirror did just break the story that there have been 26 Met officers who've been either charged or jailed since 2016 with multifarious, horrible crimes against women. It it doesn't look great, does it?
2: It looks appalling. And it's ironic that it's taking place under the watch of the first female commissioner. And sad, but you know Boris was right the other day when he said look you do have to trust the police you ca- you cannot be wary of the people who have to enforce law and order so it's in- absolutely critical that that trust is restored in some way does it involve getting rid of Caressida Dick possibly i mean i wouldn't we haven't i haven't written a leader asking that, or demanding that she should go but i can understand that sometimes senior heads must roll in order that People feel that changes has taken place, even if it is effectively superficial or emblematic, but maybe that has to happen.
0: Philip, your family left Northern Ireland when you were seven. You were brought up in Kent, where you went to grammar school, followed by the University of York, where you read politics and history before, as we as we mentioned, joining Thompson Regional Newspapers as a graduate trainee in 1977. I'm I'm intrigued as to how your own politics developed and how you ascended to the eminence of chief leader writer for the Daily Telegraph. Were, were you ever a, a radical lefty at all?
2: Of course. We all. Certainly in the 70s. Yes. Certainly in the 70s yes. we were. No, I was a radical left. I'd even um, flirted with the idea of, I think a, I think the international socialists or the international mm. Marxists came round to my room <laughs> and said, we noticed you were interested in um, in uh, uh, one of our freshers' meetings. But in fact, I then joined the university newspaper and ended up editing it and and writing thundering leaders against the international socialist socialists in Tushman, who then were threatening me with all sorts of... Uh, but no, I was... A, and then I went to join the Evening Post in Reading where, because I was the youngest there, they made me um, father of the chapel of the National Union of Journalists in 1978-79. That was the winter of discontent. When people say we're heading for a winter of discontent, they don't remember the winter of discontent. It was far, far worse <laughs> than what we're facing. What we may get is a winter of shortages and a winter of, um, of things that don't work as well as they should do.
0: Since the Labour conference last week, Labour's actually gone down in the polls. Normally you get a party conference bounce, don't you? Do, do you think they're finished? Do you think if Boris moves us in a more right direction, do you think, do you think a party of the right may emerge?
2: Uh, we've heard these things so many times in the past haven't we really when Blair sort of splurged his self across the entire middle ground we're going to get parties of the left in fact what happened was the left just sat there waiting inside the Labour Party and new parties are hard to form in this country I mean you know I remember going to the uh, launch of the SDP remember them
0: Mm. of blessed memory yes I do I voted voted for them actually I don't know about you, but I still I still feel when I interviewed Dr. David Owen not long ago for the paper, and I don't feel we have many people of his calibre now. Do you do you, Do you feel that we have a lower calibre of politician now? Uh,
2: yes, I, I think we do. We don't. I mean, I don't want to be prone to this sort of golden ageism, which I think there is a tendency as you get older to think things were always better or politicians were always greater, but I, th- I think they were, and I think partly is because of the generation, that certainly the ones that I knew, Owen's not of that generation, but when I was a very young lobby correspondent, you know, they, these people had fought in the war. I mean, half of them, you know, people like Whitelaw and Dennis Healy were military cross holders. Mm, mm. People were still referred to in the House of Commons as the Honourable yeah. and Gallant Gentlemen yes. who fought yeah. their way up through Italy, and goodness knows what. I mean, most people here couldn't fight their way out of a paper bag. <laughs> and you know the most dangerous thing they do is just drink too many tequilas
0: <laughs> well finally philip johnson i should say can i say that along with thousands of telegraph readers i set huge store by your writing i know you're very modest but we really appreciate that you can draw on such long and amazing experience. I find you very, very steadying when I'm one of, one of my hysterical rants. I read the Johnston column and I think, right, come on, Alison, rein yourself in. But if you if you had to pick a top three of governments in your long career and the top three best politicians, who would they be?
2: I mean, in terms of, of achieving Thatcher, in terms of ability to win until... He blew it with Iraq, Blair. And in terms of star quality, funnily enough, Boris. I mean, he's the sort of PM for the celebrity age, really, isn't he? In the sense that he's known people like him because he's a he's a sort of star rather than necessarily somebody who wants to get something done he would regard that as unfair he does want to get things done he wants to level up but he wants to build back better it's just that nobody actually knows what any of those things mean
0: (laughs) we shall see philip johnson thank you so much for coming aboard our rickety little planet normal rocket you've been an absolutely marvelous guest thank you so much
2: thanks alison
1: He's a class act, Alison, and as you say, he is in many ways the voice of the Telegraph. And it's it's humbling to hear Phil talk about just how far back his experience goes. Of course he was in Brighton when the bomb went off. Of course Ah. he was. (laughs) Why wouldn't he be? But to hear him say he was standing on the steps of the Metropole Hotel next door is pretty incredible.
0: When we stop recording, Liam... Phil added an extraordinary footnote, which is that he'd gone towards the hotel and then run away to record copy. And basically coppers were chasing after him, thinking he was one of the bombers, if you can, if you can believe it. So our chief leader writer was nearly arrested for being Irish as a bomber. I could talk to him for hours. I find his analysis so persuasive and, of course, as you said, lending this marvellous perspective.
1: It is wonderful. You could almost sound condescending to say that Phil's from a different age because, of course, he still has so much to contribute and still plays such an enormous role at the paper every day, by the way, not just with his columns but with the leaders that he writes without his byline, of course. But he is from a different age in the sense that you know he came up when newspapers were different, when politicians were different, many of them having experienced active combat in the Second World War. And I think we're really lucky to have him as a guest on Planet Normal.
0: Now onto to our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Copilot, we've got a lot of people this week who are very fired up about the government and here's kelly on boris's speech an insincere joker on a power trip leading a cabinet of political pygmies and second-raters backbenchers who say and do nothing and ignore their constituents views an opposition surely world-class in its uselessness what did the uk do to deserve this we used to be a mature democracy say what you think kelly This is from Nigel, who's a self-declared gammon, the exclamation mark,
1: the phrase that's often used to describe men of my age, I guess. My conference pass arrived last week, but for the first time in years I didn't attend as I feel estranged, says Nigel. For context, I'm 67, happily married for 44 years with children and grandchildren and a lifelong Conservative member. I'm still fully employed as CEO of a significant company and I've spent 45 years working in banking at board level in public and private companies. I like to think, therefore, I have some perspective and experience, but I think the Conservative Party has mislaid its compass and is floundering from meaningless soundbite to meaningless soundbite, losing touch completely with normal people's fears and concerns. Like you both, I had high hopes of Boris, but they've melted away with his absurd and ridiculous policies and demeanour. He denies our country's in crisis, brackets it is, and has no sense of gravitas. He is simply not serieux and has no grasp on how to get things done. Talk is cheap, and by God, he talks.
0: Kirsty says... The Tories are rudderless, Labour in embarrassment, Lib Dems hopelessly out of touch, Greens well-meaning but ridiculously utopian, reform, reclaim, indistinguishable, SDP have excellent ideas but are as poor as church mice and not big enough to have a full party infrastructure. Others are too niche or unnoticeable. Makes you wonder where on earth a positive political revolution will come from. Perhaps we should start a planet normal party, Halligan.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'd have a row of it. Who would be leader? Actually, it would be you. I'd be Chancellor.
0: <laughs> Keith says, Princess Nutnuts, who can he be referring to, has encouraged Boris to go native. Woke and green is her mantra, and now it is his. He will ruin the country this way ordinary people care about pollution being reduced, but consider this net zero talk is pure madness. Not only that, it gives our enemies such as France fast leverage over us because successive governments have failed in their duty to ensure Britain has an adequate home-sourced energy supply by outsourcing energy to France and Russia, a point that Philip Johnson was just making. This is indeed perilous, as now the French threaten to cut us off over any small dispute." failure to stamp out wokeism in government, charities and the public sector is shameful. Any ideology whose intent is to cause division, racism and hate against the overwhelming majority of the population has no place in the UK. Come on, Boris, wake up. I think in defence of the Prime Minister Halligan, we should say that he did finally make a stirring defence of Winston Churchill in his conference speech. And from Brian, sadly, just as surely as Harry has been Meghan, so Boris has been carried. (laughs) On that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we
1: leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn to pick and I think it has to go to my gammon friend. That's Nigel. So Nigel, estranged, CEO at a significant company based in London. Send us your postal address and you will get a Planet Normal mug by
0: return of post. If you enjoy Planet Normal, and we jolly well hope you do, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does really help others to find us so the Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website You Lucky Things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal leave a comment beneath it and I'll reply between 11 and 12. It is you, our fantastic Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast. We do learn so much from you, genuinely actually this week, getting all the feedback on the different party conferences. So do keep emailing us and as we
1: speed away from Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth, comes back into view. Thanks as ever to producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bujard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor Theodora Leloudis stay safe stay in touch with us and with each other until next week it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter